We're about halfway through our journey of Mark's biography of Jesus of Nazareth. And already, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've learned so much. I did not know there was so much to learn about the book of Mark, and my perspective of the life and teaching of Jesus has shifted and grown, I believe, in this series. Um, One of the things I really enjoy about team teaching is that we get to hear from so many different perspectives. And if you're new here and you're like, the last week there's a different person, and last week there's a different person, um, our model at Compass is we have a team of people, about four to six people, who team teach, and so uh, the joy in that, especially going through something like the book of Mark, is you get all of these different perspectives on what is being taught, and I really, really enjoy that. So far, Jesus has been doing this delicate dance through the book of Mark. We're almost exactly halfway through. He's been healing people, he's been performing these exorcisms, he's, and then he does this odd thing, he turns to him and says, shh, don't tell anyone what's happened. Don't tell anyone I just cast out that demon. Don't tell anyone you can see. You know, and how can you tell the guy that didn't used to be able to talk not to tell anyone that he can talk now? I mean, you know, some of these you're like, really, Jesus? Like, how do you think that this is gonna work? And then, when he teaches, instead of just coming out and being like, hey, Jews, I know it's been a few thousand years. I'm your long-awaited Messiah. Here I am. He teaches in these veiled stories that are indirect. And then, at the end, he just kind of says, He who has ears, let him hear. And part of you kind of goes, come on, Jesus, what are you doing? (laughs) If you really want everybody to know, why don't you just say it plainly? But so far, the only people in our story who know who Jesus really is is at the very beginning when John baptizes Jesus and the sky opens up and this thunder to some people, voice of God to other people says, this is my beloved son to whom I am pleased. And the second group of beings that know who Jesus is are the legion of demons sent out into the pigs. Son of David, have mercy on me. Who are you, son of the most high God, is actually what I think they said. But Jesus knows that eventually he's gonna be killed. And he will be killed for who he is, but it has to be timed in accordance with the plan that his father has set before him. So he is playing this game of revealing just enough about himself and the kingdom of God to show people what he's about and who he is, but leaving just enough mystery that the people that want to kill him don't quite have enough to go on. A delicate and precise dance. And this is where we find Jesus in our story. He's just called out the Pharisees and he's made some really challenging and surprising statements about what is clean and what is unclean. And now we find him stepping back from the public eye. In Mark 7, verse 24, it says, Jesus left that place and went went up to the vicinity of Tyre. So you can see on the map, Tyre's up there, that red dot. And Jesus had been teaching right around the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's about 30 miles up to Tyre. So I mean, in ancient times, that's a decent amount um, to go out of his way. So he didn't just step out into the woods for a minute. He took a couple of days hike up to Tyre and he's getting away. He's made some people angry. So he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. 
In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And he said, First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child laying on the bed, and the demon was gone. So this new attribute that we didn't know about Jesus, he's rude. This non-Jewish woman, she asked for her daughter to be healed, and Jesus basically says, no, you're a dog. That's what the the Jewish people called the Gentiles. And and then he kind of just says, maybe if I have time later, I'll come back around. It's like, what, Jesus? What are you talking about? What's happening here? This isn't the Jesus that we know. I know when I first read it this week, I was like, man, I should have read this more carefully before I signed up for this one. (laughs) I'm kind of offended, right? Like, how is this going to be explained away? One commentary I read, it gave me, I think, a better perspective of what was happening here. Some of you have this book. I know Cheryl has it, and I think Susan, a couple other people. N.T. Wright, he has this book called Mark for Everyone. We still have like a half a year through Mark, so if you haven't picked the book up, it is really a great commentary. It's easy to read, but has really great insights. But um, in this commentary, N.T. Wright talks about how Jesus knew what his personal vocation and purpose was and it was not to spread the gospel to the Gentiles but to tell the Jewish people themselves that their long-awaited deliverance was at hand God's intended purpose for the Jewish people and we watched it all throughout the Old Testament God's intended purpose was that the Jewish people would be a light to the world and that as the world saw what it would look like living in God's kingdom they would say wow I'm curious about that I want to be like that and eventually the entire world would know about the kingdom of God but over and over all throughout the Old Testament we see that the Jewish people just fail and don't make it So this, Jesus knows his purpose is to come into the world and redefine the kingdom and to attempt to give those Jewish people one more chance to live into their purpose. One more chance to say, okay, here is our Messiah. He's here. Now let's take hold of it and let's be the example that God's always meant for us to be. And Jesus wants to stick with that purpose. I believe so that later when we all get to look back through time, no one will ever be able to say the Jewish people and the the people before, that God did not give every single chance all throughout history. I think we'll see that God's always merciful, always giving repeated chances. And so God's purpose for these Jews is that eventually, through them, the world will know their own creator and see what God is really like. The Gentiles, Jesus knows, they'll be brought in soon enough. But for now, Jesus is focused on his primary task, the thing the Father had sent him to do. So he had to come up north out of Jewish territory. So that far north is way up into some some Greek territory. And um, he wasn't meaning to to draw attention to himself, which as soon as you heal somebody, when you tell uh, provocative stories, that usually stirs up a crowd. And so he's he's meaning to lie low, but of course you don't have the reputation he has and and be able to lay low very well. So this woman approaches him. And I believe his response to the woman from Tyre is not one of bigotry, but of clarity of purpose. 
Jesus is not saying that Gentiles don't have a claim on the love and mercy of God. He's just being careful not to be distracted by a good thing to do in front of him if it's going to take away from the great and difficult and dangerous task that the Father had called him to do. Publicity in Tyre would have sent all the wrong messages. Jesus' work wasn't primarily that of a medical missionary, but of inaugurating God's kingdom. So I kind of believe that Jesus, we were talking a little bit last night, Sue and Susan and um, some of us just talking about how tongue-in-cheek Jesus often is. And this seems like, I believe, one of these instances. Don't you know? We've got to let the children eat all that they want. And she responds. She doesn't seem offended. She has a really great comeback. And she says, hey, even the dogs under the table get to eat what the children drop. So here, give me the ceiling. So Jesus is not saying that Gentiles don't have a claim on the love and mercy of God. Where would we be if that were the case? He is just being careful, very careful to stay on mission. This story is a clear reminder that Jesus wasn't simply called to go around being helpful to everyone. What, I mean, haven't a lot of us heard that's what the Christian life is all about? Don't we beat ourselves up when we can't help everyone? Don't we guilt and shame ourselves when we can't do everything? Seems like this happens even more to women than, well, I can't be there for everyone and everything. But Jesus, he had specific and controversial things to do in a limited amount of time. And when we cozy up this image of this universal problem solver, Jesus, we miss the towering importance of his unique assignment in the world. All that to say, Jesus ended up healing the woman's daughter. Simultaneously proving what he had just taught about being clean and unclean. If you were here last week, Mark taught about um, Jesus kind of, he's revealing how soon there won't be clean and unclean, but everybody is welcome. These old barriers are being swept away and Jesus is foreshadowing that when he goes ahead and heals this woman from Tyre's daughter. It's a clear, it's proving that he's serious about what he's already taught. That the dogs under the table were already sharing the children's bread and pretty soon they would cease to be dogs and become children alongside the others. The king of the Jews was about to become the savior of the world. So Jesus does that, and then he, he's all the way up in Tyre. You can see up on the top left-hand side. And then instead of just doing a straight shot down, back to Galilee, Capernaum, where he often stayed, it would be right there almost directly north at the top of the Sea of Galilee. But instead of just doing the straight shot down, he takes the long way around. He's going down to the... Decapolis, the ten cities, and he takes this long way all the way up on the northern side up above the Sea of Galilee and down. A lot of people are like, why in the world that's so much longer when you're walking? But many believe that the reason he did that is because, again, he is trying to avoid these masses of people. He's just made some people very angry. And so he's trying to not stir the pot until the time is right and come back around. So Jesus left in verse 31 Mark 7, 31, when Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region 
of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put fingers away from the crowd. So see, again, with kind of the secrecy. Away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit, people believed that spit had magical properties back then, and he touched the man's tongue. You can kind of imagine what that would have looked like. Hands in ears, and then he spits right in his tongue. And then, with a deep sigh, says, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. So if you can imagine how strange and powerful that must have looked, he's got his ears in, he spits on his tongue, and just yells out this one phrase. And at this, the man's ears were open, and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. He fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, that says, blind eyes will be opened, deaf ears will be unstopped, and silent tongues will start to sing at the coming of the Messiah. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He does all things well. Or maybe it should be more accurately said, the things he chooses to do, he does well. It's not that he did every single thing that came to him, took every opportunity, and then did them all perfectly. Jesus was not simply this fun-loving hippie sticking it to the man, spreading the love and joy and just healing haphazardly all over to everybody that he encountered. No, Jesus was precise. He was calculating, intentional. He was able to say no to good things, to do the great thing that the Father had asked him to do. He could step away. He did the uncomfortable, the dangerous, and the risky. So the question I have at the end of these two stories is how did he do it? How did he know when to go up to Tyre? How did he know if he should or shouldn't heal the woman from Tyre? How did he know to go the long way around and to make sure that nobody killed him? How did he know that this is the time that I should fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah? I get anxious just thinking about the enormous amount of tasks and responsibilities he was juggling at any moment. And he didn't even have Google. I mean, he's just, how is he even doing this? As Sue Shaw said so matter-of-factly last night when we were talking, he's Jesus, of course he could do it. Which I agree wholeheartedly. That leads me to the next question. Well, if I'm supposed to follow Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did, how do I begin to do that? How do I do the things that I do well? And how do I know what those things even are? Because I do all the things well, right? Emphasis on the all. Anybody else? I mean, yesterday, so I got some goats this week, which might turn out to be a mistake, but they're really cute. And if you ask Fallon at any point, Fallon, are there some goats? Do we get some goats? (laughs) Every person she's seen today, she just, goats! (laughs) She's so excited. 
But we were out playing with the goats, and so everybody was grassy and sweaty and had bug bites. And so in the bathtub, I went with both kids. Shandy's at work. And in the bathtub, I picked out a goat in Child Playground on Pinterest. You can make these really cool ones with a culvert, and I'm totally sold on that. Um, I ordered some tea online so I could quit drinking coffee and get some really good tea. And I also managed to get everybody bathed and drink a soda and listen to a podcast. And I bet I did all of it well. (laughs) There's still diapers on the floor. And I mean, my bathroom looks like it exploded, but it got done. Have you heard of the Enneagram? Anybody? It's kind of gaining momentum. In fact, this month, if you're subscribed to Magnolia Magazine, um, Chip and Joanna Gaines Magazine, um, there's one of the feature articles in there is about this ancient tool where there's nine types. And it's, if, if you're a little skeptical of personality types, it's really um, pretty cool because they all interact with each other. It's not quite so much of a box. It's really dynamic. Um, some of it's been traced back to about 2,000 years ago. So, I mean, it is an ancient, ancient tool. But... Um, each of the types is named after the number, and I'm a type seven. So I was looking at it today. I've looked at it a lot more days than today, but um, it, my type is described as the busy, variety-seeking type, spontaneous, versatile, acquiescive, and scattered. So not only do we happen to live in arguably the busiest time in human history, but the key crux of my personality is learning to take about the 5,000 directions I'm constantly trying to go and hone it down to a few key things. Something I think will be a lifelong journey for me. But this has been a huge spiritual challenge to me. That acquiescent, I had to Google that, it just means um, wanting to obtain things. Um, I guess to acquire them, maybe is where it comes from. But even with spirituality, I'm wanting to acquire. I want more information. I want more books. I want more discussions. I want more podcasts. I just want more things about spirituality. And a huge challenge to me lately and over the last few years has been saying no, but even trying to choose what do I even say no to to make room for the true spirituality. As a Christian, I want the few things that I say yes to to be those that he would have me do, not just the things that I think are interesting and that I want to do. So when I read these two stories where Jesus just seems to know where to go and what to do and who to heal and which prophecy to fulfill, and he does it all with grace, peace, joy, and truth, something deep inside me says, how do I be like that? I believe I have faith that it's possible for all of us to be like that. Yes, Jesus was the son of the God, he was divine, but we also know that he's fully human. It's impossible for us to be like him and be perfect, but we have this double standard, right? Our society's filled with double standard. We say, be like Jesus, but also that's impossible, so I mean, I guess don't worry about it. But no, I, I don't think we can be perfect, but I do believe that Jesus' life was a template for us to see what life with God can be like. Amen. To be so spirit-filled and so in touch with the Father but that he knows, or that we know, what he wants us to do and who he wants us to be. There's promises like that all over the Bible that the Spirit will live in us and transform us from the inside out. So how do we be like Jesus? We do what Jesus did. 
And instantly, if you're like me, it goes, oh my goodness, I gotta do the whole Sermon on the Mount, I guess. That's just a, you know, lifelong, most important sermon in human history, arguably. So I guess I should pretty much start loving my enemies. And, you know, your mind can just churn. I guess I should probably try healing. I think that that's still possible. But, I mean, your mind could just go, 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 go. I gotta be like Jesus. But the first thing that Jesus did before he healed anyone before he was ever in the public eye, was spend 30 anonymous years working and growing in his identity with the Father. The first part of his ministry was 40 days in the desert with God. And all through Mark and the other gospel accounts, we see Jesus leaving and going out alone, either in the early morning, late at night, sometimes all night to be alone with God. And yes, because we're not divine, we can't do that perfectly as Jesus was able to do. But as sons and daughters of God, we have the same access by the blood of Jesus to the resources of the kingdom of God. Most of us will just never have the discipline to stay undistracted long enough to believe or be intentional enough to grasp hold of it. And I don't think that changes our standing at all, just to be clear, with God, but I do think it's a tragedy, and what do we miss out on by not grabbing a hold of the things that are offered? Henry Nouwen says, in the spiritual life, the word discipline means the effort to create some space in which God can act. Isn't that such a relief of a definition? We hear discipline and we're like, ooh. Like who wants discipline? But that's such a freeing definition. Discipline means to prevent everything in your life from being filled up. Discipline means that somewhere you're not occupied and certainly not preoccupied. In the spiritual life, discipline means to create that space in which something can happen that you hadn't planned or counted on. This is the model that Jesus has set before us. A life molded around the Father. All the healing, the saying no, the resurrection, the timing, the friendships, the parables, the calling out, the prophecies fulfilled, this grace distributed, was all done in response to life with God. I don't know where, what your life with God is like. Often we like to measure it by our biggest spiritual accomplishments or our largest failures and falls. But I don't believe that's what Jesus' example tells us. Through Jesus, we see that life with God is made up with hundreds, thousands, and over a lifetime, millions of tiny opportunities for connection. No one else but you can look at your life and tell if your practice is to turn toward God in those moments or to stay too distracted or too busy to even notice. Only you can know. And if you're like me, that knowledge starts to prick at you. As I'm sitting in the bathtub yesterday, I'm going, why do I need to be this distracted? Why can I not just put my phone down and look at these cute kids and sit here. I don't always choose it, but now I'm aware. Why do I need to be eating Skittles and listening to the podcast and driving home from work while thinking about going to Taco Bell? What would 15 minutes of silence do to me? 
So if you hear these stories of Jesus and something in you stirs up and you say, I just wanna be like that, the first step is not to say, hmm, let me try my hand at healing. Maybe I could prophesy next week at church. Let me see if I can cast out this demon or just radically accept this person or be kind all the time and speak the truth when it counts. If you're like me and you try to do those things without time with God, you actually just become more of an awful person, right? Because then not only are you not able to do those things, but you're also mad at yourself and everyone else that you can't. The first step in all of this is in the anonymity of your secret life. The early morning, the middle of the night, the long seasons of loneliness, whether you're young and single, whether you're in a marriage where you feel alone, whether your spouse has passed away or you're divorced, whether you're a mother who's staying at home going, what is this every single day? This is your life with God. And you can choose to have it in any of these moments. You can sit in the bathtub or take a long walk with no music, no podcast, no TV show, and just listen. In those moments when you feel angry or resentful or annoyed or frustrated, you talk to God. You say, God, what is this? Where is this coming from? Where there's a decision you're trying to make or a thing you're trying to understand, you seek the Holy Spirit before you ask, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? What would other people think of this? No matter how this idea is, how new this idea is to you, or how seasoned you are in your journey, there, is, there are always ways to deepen your life with God. As you return to school, as you're in those life stages, as you move through this life, the invitation of Jesus, and really the entire library of books that we call the Bible is summed up well by this verse. In Matthew 11, 29 through 30, I really like how Eugene Peterson's put this in the message. But just sit back and listen. This is the invitation of Jesus before all else. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, not a Netflix binge, not a run to Taco Bell. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus, we want to know you. And we ask that you would meet us wherever we are. People from the outside can't tell about our relationship with you, but we know. So God, I ask that wherever we are, our relationships to you look as different as there are people in this room, but we just ask that you would take us deeper. We ask that in moments throughout our days and our lives that we would turn toward you, that you would silence uh, the voices that say, no, you've turned away too often. Or no, God doesn't care about that. Why would I talk to him about that? And we ask that you would give us the courage 
to turn towards you, that you wouldn't give up on us in this age. We recognize that the time we live in has more distractions, has multi-billion dollar companies vying for our attention and our time. And we just ask that in each life represented here, that in our own way we would learn what it's like you, like throughout our daily lives to turn toward you. We thank you for being a God who meets us where we are. We thank you for being a God who is already one and is inviting us as children to enter the kingdom. We praise you and thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.